Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here with Rachel Madel. Rachel, we just got out of Closing the Gap. We talked about that in our previous episode. Um, and one of the questions that came up during the Closing the Gap pre-conference was all about initiation. Like you have a student that is not necessarily initiating. What can you do to help prompt them through and teach them to become someone who initiates? Yes, this is an excellent question, and I'm really excited to talk about this because I feel super strongly about it, and it's one of the biggest areas that I see missed when I come in and I'm starting to work with a student. It, I feel like the percentage is so high. I think it's like 90% of the kids that I start working with with AAC, I have to create an initiation goal for, uh, independent initiation, mind you. Um, you know, assuming that the student has the ability to independently communicate. All kids, we should give the opportunity to autonomously communicate. Um, some kids, you know, are doing partner-assisted auditory scanning and things like that. So, you know, but a majority of the students that I work with have the ability to independently, you know, access their system and communicate. So anyway, the first kind of step in thinking through this is figuring out what are the students doing and initiation wise, because I don't even think it's something that a lot of practitioners or educators are even thinking about. Um, I think we think about it when it happens, right? It's like, oh, wow, they independently came up and said something to me, um, you know, which is great to, you know, celebrate that and to talk about that. But, you know, as clinicians, especially um, speech language pathologists, we really need to build a strong foundation for independent initiation because what happens if we don't build that strong foundation, then, you know, all of a sudden we are working with students who are relying heavily on us asking them questions in order to get a response, us telling them what to say in order to get a response, and kids aren't really using independent communication um, regularly, regularly throughout the day. Um, and so it's really important skill. And the first step is just thinking about how are students independently initiating. So I actually have a resource on my website. So the resource is called um, AAC Vocabulary Bundle. And basically, there's a lot of things in there. There's a prompting hierarchy, explains how to use it, um, which is really relevant to, you know, thinking about independent initiation. Um, but one of my favorite resources is um, a spontaneous language tracking sheet. And it is not fancy. You don't need the resource in order to do this. Um, you can literally just have a piece of paper. But um, the idea is I teach communication partners what spontaneous language means, right? Because we need to define that for people. Um, you know, spontaneous is child has an idea completely on their own, and then they're communicating that to you. And they're communicating it in a variety of ways, whether that's verbal speech or an approximation, uh, a gesture, a sign on their AAC system. You know, it doesn't really matter to me the modality of communication. It's really just student has an idea, they are communicating it with me independently. They didn't need a question to communicate it. They didn't need me to tell them to go get their talker. Um, they didn't need me to do anything. They just had an idea and they communicated it spontaneously. So that's kind of the first step is figuring out what are students doing. And inevitably, I give this assignment to teachers and to SLPs and to parents. And I say, okay, between now and the next week, like just fill this out, write down what they said and in what context they said it. And more often than not, families, educators come back to me and they're like, 
not much is happening. <laughs> um, they're not saying a whole lot, um, you know, or, you know, it's the same thing over and over again, right? It's like one specific toy or game or person or food. Um, and so it's really eye-opening. Um, and that that's the best way to demonstrate that a child is dependent on prompting and questions and things like that. Because oftentimes we as clinicians can pick it up. It's like we're really in tune with, wow, like, you know, they're really only communicating when we ask them to or tell them to say something. Um, but other practitioners and especially parents, they don't always see it. Um, and so I think that exercise in and of itself is really valuable. And so do you find then that they have this sort of aha moment when they're re reflecting on that own their own data there that they've collected and they say, ooh, something has to change? Yes. And the other thing it does is it starts tuning people in to what they should be looking for, right? So it's the practice of even noticing independent initiation and spontaneous language. Um, because I think that, again, especially parents, they're not really practiced at that. Um, they think, you know, oh, look, he's using his device and he's building sentences. And, you know, for me, I'm thinking he is using his device. He is building sentences, but we're telling him exactly what to say. And then he's repeating us, which is not the same as I have an idea and I'm going to communicate it to you. Okay. So, um, so let's say a student then that data that's going through that process, they have written down and they do see some moments and they, that initiation might be something that is more gestures or it might be some sort of, uh, vocalization, right? Is that fair to say? And they're not necessarily, many students might not necessarily be using words to initiate, um, uh, so what is something that we can do to then now to say, okay, how do we turn that those moments of, of gestures and vocalizations into words? What do we do? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, you know, we can always start by just modeling on an AAC system and attaching language. So if a child's pushing something away, for example, that's a very common gesture that I see a lot of my students doing. When they don't want something, they push it away. So that's a great opportunity to say, oh, you're pushing that away. It looks like, you know, you don't want that. You can say no or stop or, you know, don't want or wherever the child's language skills are, right? Um, and so that's like a really easy thing. Start attaching language to especially gestural communication, but also verbal approximations that maybe aren't understood by everyone. Um, signs, sometimes a lot of my students have some sign language, but it's all kind of modified signs or home signs so the only person that understands it is like mom and dad and like you know a few practitioners that have been working with the student for a long time um, but it's not universally understood um, and so that's a really easy thing to just start modeling that language on a system to show like you can also say it on here Okay, so so really just modeling and doing um, filling in words that the student could say uh, in those situations. And you said so abatement, like okay, I want I want to stop this. And I guess the uh, the flip of that same uh, the the flip side of that same scenario would be if a student you know a student likes certain things, right? And so now you could be filling in when a student like always likes a certain drink, let's say, or a certain toy or a certain activity. Um, again, modeling the words to use when you want to do that activity, right? So if uh, in the past you used the example of a swing, right? So I could totally see myself sitting on a swing going, I swing, I swing, you know what I mean? And pressing that on the communication device next to a student who might then come over and swing next to me. Yep, totally. Yeah. And so that's really important to just start 
modeling language that could be used. But sometimes, and we talked about this on previous podcasts, sometimes simply modeling language is not enough to get our students spontaneously communicating. Because part of the problem is when I see a child who's overprompted, sometimes it's not because there isn't modeling happening in the classroom or at home. Sometimes that what the problem is we're never giving a student space to independently communicate. So like in every situation, we're like jumping in, we're modeling, we're asking questions. And so really the practice is finding something highly motivating and stepping back to see if I tempt and pause or I sabotage something, what happens? And I think that what happens is we want things to happen quickly. We're fast paced. We're like in a session. We're trying to do things. We're trying to get kids communicating. And so we don't give the necessary time for students to think, you know, oh, I want to see that happen or I want to experience that thing. What could I say right now? Oh, I could say this. And like, how do I do that? Oh, there's this device everyone's had next to me, you know, forever modeling language. Like, here's what I could say. And so that space allows a student to start kind of problem solving in the initial stages if they're not, you know, frequently communicating independently um, in order to get their needs met. But if we never give that space, then children will just wait for us to model that language and they'll imitate it um, or they'll wait for us to ask what they want or they'll wait for us to say, tell me with your talker, right? Um, So then we can kind of condition kids that, you know, you only have to respond, right? It's not the same as independent initiation. So and I've certainly met those students that uh, have their communication device and they'll hover their finger over a word and look at you like, do I have permission to press the button, right? Um, so let's talk about that wait time for a second because so that, that wait time is the very first step, providing that wait time is the first step in, in doing a least to most uh, prompting hierarchy, right? And so uh, is that what you're getting at, right? Is that so let's give that wait time. And you could even measure the wait time if you really wanted to get um, technical about it and see how much that wait time decreases over time. I think that strategy is called uh, constant time delay. So where you know, okay, so I'm always going to give uh, 10 seconds, you know, okay, they, they responded within those 10 seconds. So next time, going to give it seven, you know, and see if it, you know, see if they do it faster. Um, but that's the first step in the least to most prompting, right? Is that, am I, am I thinking of all that correctly? Yeah, no, exactly. I think it's also relevant to remember that processing time depends on a lot of different factors for a student. I have some kids like yesterday, Chris, it was a magic day. I had all my kids having like the best sessions ever. And I feel like that never happens, but on those magic days, I'm just like, I feel like I'm just like, I feel like I'm in the middle of like a musical and I could be like singing and dancing and like such pure joy because that never happens. It's always like, you know, when, you know, student maybe not having the best day next student. But anyway, I had a magic day yesterday where all my kids were just like super attentive, super chatty. Um, You know, all the things I was asking of them, they were doing, we were having fun, they were communicating. And, you know, the processing was faster. So communication happens more easily for students when their processing time is a little bit quicker. Um, and conversely, when, you know, they're tired, they have some type of thing going on medically, um, you know, we, we all have off days and those 
off days, like think about ourselves. Like my brain doesn't work as fast. I'm like, oh man, I'm tired and like have all these things to do and I can't remember even what I'm supposed to do and like what was I supposed to do? You know, like we all have days where we're, you know, our brain is sharper and faster and other days where, where it's not. And so, you know, I think it's really good to get kind of a baseline of where, you know, a student's at with wait time, but knowing that it could change in one direction or the other based on, you know, that day and whatever's happening in the student's life. Yeah, 100% agree, 100% agree. So, Rachel, I think we've given people some good strategies here on how to um, work through a situation where a student is not necessarily initiating as much as we'd like them to. So try some of the things that we suggested here. Is that fair? It is. Um, And the last thing I'll add is if we're thinking about independent initiation, I mean, this is an important concept always, but it's essential to find something that's motivating. If it's not motivating, we could tempt and pause all day long and nothing's going to happen because they're like, don't care. Don't care about what color marker I'm going to use to fill out this worksheet. You know, like, so we need to, need to, need to prioritize the most motivating thing. Um, So that's a really important consideration to think about. Um, The other thing is, if we're thinking about the prompting hierarchy, Um, We can't fade our prompts and our scaffolding and our support with a vocabulary target that we've never taught. So we need to give kids lots of aided language input for for a word, lots of modeling, lots of exposure before we, you know, just tempt and pause and hope for the best, right? Um, And so that's really important too, is that I won't, I can't expect a, a student to use the word open if they haven't had lots of modeling and exposure and experiences with that word, um, finding where it is on their device, seeing me model it for them. Um, so, you know, we need to just be careful that we're, we are providing aided language input and we're giving all of that up front, um, you know, but once we, we feel confident that we've given a lot of exposure and repetition, and especially if it's embedded into a familiar routine, um, that's when you know, motivation's high and I'm just going to pull something out or tempt or sabotage and just wait it out. Um, because I'm like, I know that I've given you lots of aided language input. I know you're really excited about this thing. This is the moment where I want to see, you know, will you independently communicate that you want something to happen um, to get that desired outcome? Um, so that's kind of the way I like to think about it. But sometimes what I see is like, oh, they're not independently initiating. And my first question is like, are they motivated to? And nine times out of 10, it's like, no, they don't care about what color marker. They don't care. <laughs> so like we need to find something they care about. And then once you do, once you work on this skill with their favorite things, even if it's, you know, oh, they totally know how to get to, uh, you know, blueberries on their device. It's like their favorite fruit. They say it all the time. It's like, use that, but make sure that when you're actually pulling the blueberries out, you're not jumping in right away and modeling and asking questions and, you know, that's when we have that, you know, very, very unique experience where we can wait and just see what happens. Um, And then, of course, jump in and scaffold the learning if we need to, but um, really capitalizing on those moments. Because the more experience a child has with independent initiation, all of a sudden they learn, I can do this on my own. I can tell you exactly what I want completely on my own without your help. And once we have that strong foundation, then we can start expanding all types of vocabulary and core words and sentence building and all these things. Um, But if we don't have that foundation, then, you know, kids are just relying on us to, you know, tell them what to say or, you know, 
ask questions and you know model and have them imitate. Um, so it really is such a fundamental concept that I think everyone needs to think about. Um, you know, when we're thinking about targets for our students and our goals. Um, I come in to like every team I'm on and I'm like, all right, everybody, independent initiation goal. Um, it's funny, like my team is actually conditioned to do this now too. And so, you know, the first thing I'll say is like, what goal's missing? And they'll be like, independent initiation. Because <laughs> it's so important. Because if we're not teaching kids to be independent communicators, what are we doing? We're not doing our job. <laughs> I couldn't agree more with all of that. Fantastic. Uh, so, Rachel, um, do you want to tell us about the what's going on today in the interviews? It's our small talk episode, Chris, which I'm super excited about. We've been sitting on this one for a while. Uh, I feel bad. we kind of just been like putting it off and putting it off. And we're like, you know what? It's time for a small talks episode, uh, which are some of our best because we take little snippets of interviews that we've done uh, and we collect them together for kind of an eclectic interview mix. Um, so, yeah, today we are going to be going through interviews that you did, Chris. Yes, exactly. So these are interviews with so the kind of bonus interviews of people who have already been on the podcast. So uh, this is Colleen Warren, Jennifer Edge Savage, Kim Albrecht, Mark Brown, and Meryl Schnapp. They're all going to be part of this upcoming Small Talks episode. Hey there! If you love listening to this podcast, we would be so, so grateful for your support to keep it going. By becoming a Patreon member, you can not only help us cover the cost of this podcast, but you can get some really great bonus content as well. We post video tutorials, behind-the-scenes recordings, and bonus segments from our interviews. We would love for you to join us by going to patreon.com slash talkingwithtech. That's patreon.com slash talkingwithtech. So welcome back to the podcast. This is a small talk episode. So we invite people who have been on the podcast before to kind of share one little tip or strategy or something that's on their mind. So welcome back, Mark Brown. Mark, how's it going? Good. How are you, Chris? Good. So what's a, what's a tip or strategy or something you want to talk about? So bear with me here. Um, something that I'm curious about and would like to be a part of better understanding and developing strategies is how we can better support the patient population for those with 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome. It's a, a fairly common syndrome where patients who have it are essentially every single organ system in their body is affected. Um, and the, the organ systems that we as speech pathologists would be most, most intrigued by, so language is, is delayed in this patient population. Cognition, there, there's deficits there. Um, they also have below pharyngeal insufficiency a vast majority of the time due to their anatomy, which does create hypernasal resonance, which then impacts uh, articulation potentially and overall speech intelligibility. So um, what, I'm, what I'm trying to describe is this is a, a very complex uh, patient profile and communication in general is very severely impacted. And to be honest with you, the um, methodology to address articulation and, as well as the velopharyngeal insufficiency, which requires surgical management, those areas are pretty well understood and pretty well researched. Me much of the literature mentions that AAC can be used as a support 
while the, the patient is working to develop intelligible verbal language, but there's not really much of a conversation about how that can be used as an interim support while they're working on all of those things. And just to, to give additional description, um, some of these children may not say their first word until two or three years of age, and that's just kind of the profile that they have. Um, but, but yet there's, there hasn't, at least to my knowledge, there hasn't really been um, any studies that have integrated AAC at those earlier stages of development. And, and the important thing I want to emphasize is the expectation for this patient population is intelligible verbal speech. It just takes a while to get there because of all of the complexities of their syndrome. Mm -hmm. So if we provided AAC at an earlier um, age, that might help with their language development further on. Is that sort of what you're getting at? Might. That's what I'm thinking. Um, it's something that I'm curious about. And like I said, would like to be a part of uh, learning more about that. I know that there's a professor in Australia is, is really the, the one person I could find who's really leading this conversation or trying to, Dr. Laura Roche. Um, she's trying to look into how AAC can be integrated into that treatment profile. Um, and, and I'm from my craniofacial background, I'm trying to uh, integrate that as well, because I, I think it's important to reemphasize these uh, patients, a vast majority of them are intelligible verbal communicators and, or, or they should be with appropriate articulation therapy. Um, but how do we use AAC as that temporary support to build language and improve um, uh, classroom participation, uh, building peer relationships, things like that. Well, and I think, you know, the research is pretty clear that AAC never hurts, right? So is there ever a reason not to provide it at an early age? It just helps people make connections earlier, makes their uh, the, 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 the socializations a little bit easier. And at some point, you can always just kind of stop using it, you know, but mm -hmm. it, it, there, is there a reason not to provide it? I, it seems to me like it, it should be provided. The one, I, I agree with you and 99% of the time that has been the case in my experience, and I'm just throwing out numbers here, this isn't yeah. uh, evidence-based, <laughs> um, but uh, the one scenario I could see where it could be detrimental is if AAC is introduced as that supplemental support, but then at some point articulation therapy is abandoned because it, it for this these patients it is really intensive and it needs to be very structured. So if maybe there's I don't know SLP turnover and the new SLP picks up this patient or the student and sees AAC and thinks mm, they they can't be a successful verbal communicator, I could see that being um, a problem, but. It wouldn't necessarily be AAC that's the problem. It would just be the interpretation and understanding of uh, the patient and the prognosis of verbal communication. So I would just recommend uh, collaboration with the craniofacial team if they're being followed by one. Um, obviously, if you're hearing this, you're, I, in my opinion, you're headed in the right direction because you're um, hearing how those things could be integrated. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's the one scenario I could see where it could potentially be detrimental.
Awesome. Awesome. That makes, it makes a lot of sense to me to that. And it, it so ad, aligns with um, at least my current thinking that it really is never the AAC. It's always the implementation. Even if you look at, you know, uh, how, how la the, the lack of in implementation or the, the, the um, in this case, what you're suggesting is continued implementation because it's the lack of articulation, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. It's all about the implementation, not about the tool necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. So Meryl, welcome back to the podcast. Is there anything that's on your mind? What are you thinking about? What's a tip or strategy that you want to talk about? Um, so lately I've been working with a classroom teacher and she, um, a number of students in her classroom um, are non-speaking and have pretty significant visual impairments. And they've been using some mid-tech devices and in addition to um, object symbols. And we've been talking about working more towards integrating core language to expand um, her students' communication abilities. And so Project Core has these amazing tactile symbols. And we've been working on using those um, and starting to uh, teach her students how to use those. And ultimately where I'd like to see it going is um, to create a large classroom size core board with all the symbols, you know, where they would otherwise be located acting the way any other core classroom core board would, but with the tactile symbols available in those consistent locations. Meryl, just to be clear here, when you say those tactile symbols, do you mean the 3D printed ones? Yes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So no joke, no joke. I printed them today. In fact, you can see the cut on my finger where I was like peeling the, <laughs> the 3D printer symbol off the bed and I was like, cut myself just a little bit because I'm delivering those on Monday uh, to a classroom who is going to be trying them out. So the, your vision there of a whole classroom um, wall that that could be used and then making some like portable ones. I mean, that is awesome. <laughs> and totally right up my alley. Yeah. I mean, right now they have, they have some portable ones um, because a lot of these students are still remote. We're working on, you know, shipping equal ones out to each family um, in addition to having them available in the classroom and with the teacher. But, you know, even within Project Core, um, and we all kind of know that, you know, having those consistent locations is so valuable. Mm -hmm. um, but how do you do that when you have 32 palm-sized objects. Right, right. In <laughs> fact, the, oh my gosh. So we were talking to the teacher because we were like, we're going to bring these to you just so you have an idea of where to get started. But recognize we could change the size. We can make them much bigger. We can make them smaller. We wouldn't want to make them too small depending on the student. Like they could be a swallow hazard. Do you know what I mean? But there's <laughs> so much variability that you can do with 3D printing to make it really customized um, for the needs of the student, you know? So yeah, and, and and what you're saying too, I think is really important because you're, you're, uh, I think there might be a lot of people that would try and put those in place and not put them in a consistent location. And, you know, like, yeah, just kind of using the random symbols, but you're saying we want them in a consistent location. So the student always knows where to grab them. And it's all, you're talking about motor memory and motor planning. Absolutely. I mean, I just imagine how frustrated I would be if I had to dig through, um, a basket of 32 objects to figure out 
how to say what I wanted to. I mean, I just think about myself looking through my purse whenever I need anything and that that's frustrating enough. Um, so if I had to do that every time I wanted to communicate with someone, um, I imagine I would just end up tossing that basket right across the room. Um, so I'm hoping that we can find a way to, to make that a little more accessible. Awesome. Listen, this has been an awesome discussion. Thank you so much for um, coming on the podcast and for coming back for this small talk episodes. So I'd like to welcome back to the podcast, Jennifer Edge Savitz. How's it going, Jennifer? Great. Thank you. So at the time of this recording, it's uh, ATI is, is uh, ATIA has just kicked off. And um, I see that you are presenting at ATIA on something about AAC town halls. So can you talk a little bit about that? What what's what's the story behind that? So this is kind of fun. So um, wearing my PRC Sotelo hat, so I'm an assistive technology consultant with Sotelo, and I have colleagues that work for PRC, Sotelo, or Coverable, and we're all in the New England region. We started working together and figuring out ways that we could support our region just before everything shut down in March. As wow. Okay. okay. So like, well, what are, how do we reach folks? What are we going to do? And I shared, I had um, joined in, and Chris, I think you were involved in this too, where Mike Murata um, and the AT Center in New Jersey started this AT Town Hall to so we all get together and say, hi, are you all okay? What are we going to do? Uh, what does this mean? How can we support folks? We're working harder than ever because everyone needs this. And what are we going to do? Um, so we were brainstorming some ideas like, well, we need to reach out. How are our folks doing? Do you want to send a, like an email blast to them? Like we want to like touch base and connect. So the amazing um, a New England or Northeast team, because it also includes New York, uh, the Northeast team decided to think, well, why don't we just try one and see how it goes as just a way to connect, build community, try to get our finger on the pulse. Like, how are you doing? And what, what do you need? How can we support you? How do we support our clients that are out in remote learning somewhere in the mm -hmm. middle of trying to trial and figure out devices or apps? Like, what can we do? Um, it's my favorite professional thing I've done this year. It, it was just great. So what is it structured like? I mean, is it Zoom calls just like the AT town halls? Which, And again, people listening might not know about those. So um, what's the experience like and how do people get invited to them? So uh, invited through us there to reach out to whoever your local consultant is and say, hey, you're doing town halls. We try to put registration links in our signature. So any email that goes out, folks know, hey, a town hall's coming up. When we first started doing them, um, we use Go, we use GoToWebinar. It's a tool that we have as a company that's HIPAA compliant and secure, and we could have hundreds of people. Mm -hmm. I think our biggest group was 125 people. Wow. Oh my goodness. That's no. awesome. <laughs> I know. And we initially were doing this. We we there was zero structure the first time other than hey, here's who we are, and here are some questions we knew we would ask, kind of like a, a, a Twitter chat goes, just some things that are on our minds, what's on yours, and very open and free. Um, we as panelists, there are five of us, um, 
David Kay, Catherine Snyder, Emily Yusuiko, and Cassie Rollins, or the group of us, five of us, were all in the north, the northeast, and we would just start chatting and being goofy and ask silly questions and what did you binge? And then, okay, let's get serious. How's this remote AC, AC evaluation going for you? And what do you need? And use it as a great way to just ask questions, to listen and support each other. No gurus, no presentations, just what do we, what do we need? And at the end, we'd always ask, when would you like to meet again next week? every two weeks. So we, it was front loaded, like every other week we would connect. And then if there were certain things that people were really interested in, we started playing with, well, let's add a segment. And we'd add a segment of here's our special guest clinician, or here's a, did you know spotlight? Did you know about these amazing AAC emulators that you could use for remote learning? And it's free. Mm -hmm. Like, so things that came up, we would try to be really responsive to and have a section for that and then open chat. What's going on? What do you need? So we're always looking at that. We don't record it. So, so people would feel comfortable just sharing, um, but it keeps evolving based on feedback. What's going on at the time. It's just usually just really great people sharing really amazing resources with each other. Did you find that the majority of the people that participated were speech therapists or did you run the gamut of like, you know, teachers, administrators, parents, users themselves? Like, was it, um, what was the dynamics of who came? It is almost hundred percent speech therapists. Mm -hmm. So it's open to anyone who wants to sneak in, but what we decided to do and, um, one of the other regions that comes to maybe we'll do a parent one. I'm like, yeah. So we did a parent focus one, shorter, did an early morning, I think in a late afternoon to see what time might work. And that was really fun. So we we plan this year to work more on parent specific ones to have a way of live, that kind of live sharing with some faces and actual live questions and certainly referring books to other resources. So, so far it's mostly for speech therapists, but I, there's potential for further growth. We'll see <laughs> where these go this year. I, I, maybe I missed it. How often are you doing them now? Now we're doing them um, about every other month. Mm -hmm. So we have not found, set into a specific consistent uh, date or time. We've tried to move it around to reach different people. Um, but th this may lead into every month we do something like a town hall or some maybe quick little specific mini presentations or resources to share. So we haven't gotten into our, an exact rhythm yet but I think it's coming. All right. Final question. That is if yeah. there were people listening to this and going, well, you know, I could probably put together a time. I mean, that sounds like really doable. It, you don't have to be um, someone that works for a, you know, an AAC company. You could be a speech therapist listening going, Hey, I could get my, my, my SLP buddies together and we could run the town hall. What kind of advice would you give them? What would you say, you know what you might want to do or might you might not want to do? Gosh, I would say one great idea. The hope is it's replicated because sometimes it matters. Have, there's national groups, of course, but maybe having that small regional or organizational group for clients, for parents, 
for everybody to get involved makes a lot of sense. I mean, we say, we uh, we try to make it look like there's absolutely no planning, but there's some planning because some people are feeling more interactive at some times than others. I think that's just reality. So having some ideas, um, but I, I guess one of the recommendations is like, let sit back and let it evolve too. Like you can have six questions plan and get to two. If the conversation was great, it was great. And save those, bank those for another time. I think the flexibility, um, I think town halls need that flexibility, some structure, but not rigidity to it, um, to just share. And we always try to keep it light and informative um, so people come back. I think I'm going to move to Vermont or New Hampshire just so I can participate in these sessions because they sound maybe, awesome. <laughs> maybe you know some folks who can sneak you in, Chris, so you can see how it's done in the Northeast. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much and uh, good luck in the presentation because I know it hasn't happened yet, but I know it's going to be awesome. So have fun. Thank you so much. Welcome to the Talking With Tech podcast. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here today with Kim Albrecht. Kim, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Let me ask you a quick question. In the episode that we did together, the whole you know hour-long episode that we put together, you mentioned something about how your family and your, your house is like Grand Central Station, which to <laughs> me means like a lot of people are coming and going. Can you describe that a little bit? Like, what do you mean by that? It's everything you picture. <laughs> um, just... Now, as we speak, the neighbor's dog is downstairs because we do things like steal the neighbor's dog and dress it in matching outfits as our dog and try to steal other people. We, I have the neighbor girls down the street. I always have their favorite food in my pantry. One one girl knows that the bag of frozen mangoes is just for her. Um, so the kids just come and go I we always have we have literally a lost and found box in our closet of things that are left at our house and you know if I could think of anything that has been so good for Miranda it is just having this open door policy where kids come and have fun and play and she may not get in there but by golly she loves watching what's going on and these kids are so comfortable with Miranda and um, know how to play with Miranda um, just because there's no structure. There's just something about unstructured, um, laid back, steal the neighbor's dog, like, and they can swim in the pool too. The dogs want to get in the pool. There's just something about that that is so good for Miranda. You heard and it here us. first. You heard it, you heard it, you heard it here. Dog, dog, dog napping is a thing. You go feel free to do it. Yeah, <laughs> that that is that's so true. The unstructured time makes so much, um, so much learning that we talk about. It seems to be like teachers want to, and and education feels like it needs to be structured, and it doesn't necessarily. It's all the moments in between. That's so much learning happens everywhere all the time. So that unstructured time seems to be so such a powerful thing. And like you said, opening the the doors to the to the neighbors and making it a welcome place. Um, when I was growing up, my that was how my house was too. It was, um, everyone would meet at my house and that's where we would hang out and everyone would stand around the kitchen and talk before we went off and did our thing, you know? Um, mm -hmm. and so I, I like that sort of unstructured environment and it seems like it's paying off for you. Yeah. You can coax them with food. As long as you have food, the kids will come like, but that's all you need. Like find out what they like to eat and make sure they always have it. And then like, just whisper to them, like, 
this bag is just for you. You can have it whenever. They'll come. They'll come. That's all you have to do. <laughs> That's great. That's so great. All right, Kim, thank you so much. Thank you. So welcome back to Talking With Tech. I'm here again with Colleen Warren. Colleen, tell us a little bit about um, how you're working to create like asynchronous professional learning experiences for people. Oh, sure. So since COVID happened, um, we want to be able to provide support to parents and students and staff so at any time. They can reach, log in, click on a link, and learn a little bit more about the technology tool that they're using. So our team developed a, a bunch of uh, screencasts. Uh, they're very specific to one feature in the one program, and they're only about two to five minutes long, no longer than that. Very short very quick, easy to use. Um, they all have closed captioning, can be completely translated into any language. Uh, so we actually have a YouTube channel on all um, these different from they have AAC different AAC programs, um, you know, languages, um, what to do in each one as well of uh, as well as different assistive technology tools, and how they can support, you know, use it how, how to use the functionality. Well, we will put the link to the YouTube sure. channel. Do you happen to know it off the top of your head? What the URL? It's like, or what they I, people would add? We'll I make sure it's not, in the show notes. I'll, yeah, I will give it to you. I don't know it off the top of my head. But. No worries. No worries. I, I, let me cut it there. I'll say. All right. So we'll put that in the show notes okay. and make sure have, everyone has access to it. Yeah. Awesome. Re real quick question. Follow-up question to that is, what tool do people use? Are, are your um, people using to create the, is it Screencastify? No, we didn't. We didn't have that. Um, so I, I think we were using Kapoing to to do the closed captioning. Okay. Uh, they were using. Um, I'm trying to think some sort of. I don't know exactly what tool, but they were using. That's what they Kapoing. So Kapoing allowed us to change the to do the captioning on it. Gotcha, gotcha. So maybe that and that I think um, might even work universally with whatever tool you use to record. Yes. That tool is a closed captioning tool that yes. so no matter what the, the video format is. Yeah. So I think everyone used something different. So our, our team has like a laptop and an iPad. So they use a variety of, of that, but there, it's really good. I'll definitely send you the link to the YouTube channel and people can subscribe. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff on them. Um, AAC as well, a playlist for AAC. So people can subscribe. That would be great. Um, it will be helpful to, but it's one way we can support uh, families and, uh, you know, whenever they need to, they can click on. Well, I can't wait to check that out. And thank you. And thank, please thank your whole team from all of us for putting that together and more. Keep, we want more. <laughs> I will. I definitely will. All right. Thanks, Colleen. Okay. Okay.